Please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 23 and 24. Before we do that, let us go before our God, asking for the illuminating power of His Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank You for everything that You do in the world, everything that You did in the earthly life of Christ, everything that You do in our lives. We pray now that You would open the eyes of our hearts, uh, that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word. May it change us, transform us, make us more like Christ, for Your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the word of our God. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as I said, it is a great blessing that we have to start off this new year with not one but two opportunities to gather together in God's house with his people, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship his name. However, unfortunately, when most people think of the new year, I doubt they will be thinking of one or two opportunities to worship God. If you had to choose one thing, and you do because I'm, I'm asking you to, uh, one thing with which the first day of the year is associated in modern America, what would that be? A party, okay. I would, I, resolution, okay. I think the party would be yesterday. Resolution today. That was a good, that was a good answer, though. <laughs> so yeah, re, a New Year's resolution. And uh, what, what is a New Year's resolution? It's, you know, a decision. There's something about your life with which you're dissatisfied. You say, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to better myself uh, in some way. And what kind of resolutions, what kind of New Year's resolutions do people make? Well, some people decide that this is the year they're finally going to learn how to blank, whatever that is. Maybe it's speak another language. Maybe it's learn a new skill. Maybe it's decide... Uh, to learn how math actually works. Um, maybe I should make that resolution because I never was too good at math, but I'll probably be too busy reading the Silmarillion for the 40th time. So some people decide to improve their minds, right? Other people decide to get in shape, say, oh, I'm going to commit to joining a gym. I'm going to commit to running a certain distance you know, every week. I'm going to commit to going on a specific diet. So they're trying to improve their body. And so other people make resolutions to make more money, maybe get a, a better job or get a raise, uh, get, get a promotion or a raise at work. Maybe they'll save more money. Maybe they'll uh, invest more money or spend less money. They're trying to improve their worldly goods. Does this sound familiar? To me, it sounds a lot like Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, wisdom, might, and riches. Now, to be sure, there are other types of New Year's resolutions that people make, uh, but we're not going to talk about them because, one, they don't fit in as well with the Scripture text. But also, uh, these three things, as we'll see later, are these three categories are, are very representative of things in which people are tempted to trust in or boast in. 
just a note, I'll be using trust and both kind of interchangeably. Um, now, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with resolutions per se. We all who are members of a church in the Presbyterian Church of America made a resolution. Does this sound familiar? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? All of us who are communicant members answered that in the affirmative. So we resolved, we made a resolution. And there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions either. It's a good thing to improve your mind. It's a good thing to uh, make your body healthy. And it's a good thing to be blessed by God with riches, both spiritual and earthly. But what this text is telling us is that God's people must not boast either in themselves or in the gifts that God has given them, but we must boast in who God is and what he has done and in our knowledge of and relationship with him through union with Christ, the power and wisdom of God. I still remember the first time that I read this passage, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and it, it really struck me uh, forcefully. It, it was probably three years ago. It was late one night, and uh, I was in bed, and as we all do, I was reading a volume of systematic theology. Uh, and the one of the authors referenced this verse, and I, I looked it up, and I read it, and I was dumbstruck. And I, I wonder if you've ever had a, an experience like this, where uh, you're reading a, a passage of Scripture, maybe one you've read before, maybe it's one with which you're very familiar, but at that moment in time, the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit hits you, and it's like you're reading it for the first time. That, was, that experience was uh, like that for me. Uh, I, and... To, uh, to show you the, the power of this, I want you to think about these three categories that Jeremiah gives us, wisdom, strength, and riches. And I want you to rank them in your mind from greatest to least. Greatest being the one that you are tempted to trust in or boast in most often, least being the one that you are tempted to boast or trust in least often. Well, if I had to do it now, even as I did it in my mind three years ago, it would be in the exact order of this text. Wisdom, strength, riches. And I had certainly read this, these verses before, but when I read it that night, it was as if the Holy Spirit had inspired Jeremiah to write these words only for me. Uh, obviously, I, I don't think that's true because that would be more than a little arrogant, but uh, such was the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit in my life uh, at that moment that that's what it felt like. And this, this passage has been with me for, uh, since then. And so, after my first exhortation, I decided that if the session was ever kind enough, uh, gracious enough to allow me to do this again, this is what I would speak on. And so, here we are. Uh, because this, this passage has had such, a, such an impact on my life, and uh, because it's such a, a pithy saying, uh, we might be tempted to take this out of the context of the book of Jeremiah, and out of the context of Scripture as a whole, um, Calvin makes the point that it, this is kind of like a proverbial saying because it's it's so short and to the point. And if we look at it as a as a proverb and divorce it from the context of the Book of Jeremiah, we lessen the impact that it has. Um, so we're going to look at at some of the context of this chapter specifically and the Book of Jeremiah as a whole. So, uh, children, who was Jeremiah? prophet, right? He was a prophet. And he was a prophet with a very uncomfortable message to give to his people. 
Uh, I would imagine that for most of us, breaking bad news to people is not something that we enjoy. Um, you know, teachers have to tell parents of their children's failures or disobediences. Parents have to tell children of the consequences of their disobedience. Uh, doctors and medical professionals have to tell loved, one, loved ones of the death of their loved ones. Jeremiah had a very bad message, not, well, a very uncomfortable message to give to his people because it was not just uh, an individual message, but it was a nationwide message. His message was the coming judgment for his people's covenant faithlessness. We might be tempted to see Jeremiah as, as kind of a pessimist because a lot of his, a lot of his writings are uh, sad, sorrowful. Uh, but he was not a pessimist. He was a, he was a realist, and there's a difference, right? Pessimists might be tempted to, to only see the bad in things, but the godly realist sees things as they actually are, and they might be very bad indeed, uh, but always with hope in our covenant God. And so one study Bible gives the theme of Jeremiah as judgment for breaking the covenant. That's, that's realism, realism there. That's bad news. Uh, and restoration by God's faithfulness, and there's the hope. So that's the theme of Jeremiah. So now let's look at how this passage fits in with that theme. Because it's not like Jeremiah had nine chapters and 22 verses of proclaiming uh, condemnation and coming judgment, and then said, hey, this is a cool saying. I'm going to write this down, and then continued on for the 40-odd other chapters that he had. No, this is, this is part of that theme. Our, uh, immediately before uh, our, our text in chapter 9, Jeremiah is sorrowing over his people's faithlessness and over the, the coming judgment that they're about to face. And immediately following our passage is a warning about being uncircumcised in heart while being circumcised in the flesh. And this is exactly what the people of Israel, the people that Jeremiah was prophesying to, uh, were going through. They were circumcised in the flesh. They had the, the covenant sign of circumcision, but their hearts were far from God. And one of the reasons that they were far from God in their heart is because they trusted in their own wisdom, their own strength, and their own riches. So this is not just a wise saying to remember, but this is also a warning about where trusting or boasting in yourself leads. What happened to the, uh, to, to the people that Jeremiah was prophesying to when they didn't repent? They were uh, enslaved, they were captured, uh, and that is what awaits us if we trust and boast in our own wisdom, strength, and riches. But it's not just an, an earthly slavery, it's not just an earthly um, bondage. It is eternal, spiritual bondage and slavery. So this is not just, like I said, this is not just a, a wise saying, although it is that, but it is a warning. So now that we have an understanding a little bit of, of how this, this passage fits in with the book of Jeremiah, let's look at these two commandments. And these might seem like contradictory commandments, because on the one hand, we're commanded not to boast, and on the other hand, we're commanded to boast. You might think, isn't that a contradiction? Well, no, it's not, and let's see why not. Let's read verse 23 again. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, 
Let not the rich man boast in his riches. So we see three categories of things in which we as humans are commanded not to boast. Like I said before, uh, these are not the only three things that you might be tempted to boast in if you're a human being, but they are representative of all boasting in self. Calvin uh, makes the point that um, although the prophet mentions only three things, yet a general doctrine may hence be suitably drawn. For what is said of wisdom, strength, and riches may and ought to be applied to that false conceit of righteousness with which hypocrites swell. So all of these, these three categories are representative of all trusting in ourselves to save ourselves. I was trying to think of an example of, of someone or a group of people who trusted in their own wisdom, strength, and riches to save themselves. And as it often does, my mind went to J.R.R. Tolkien. And I thought of, not of Lord of the Rings, or of The Hobbit, or even of The Silmarillion, but of a story called Akelabeth, or The Downfall of Numenor. I will spare you the details, not because they're boring, because it's not boring. It's a very good story, um, but because that's not really the point of this. But I will commend it to you as a, a, very, a, a prime example of where boasting and trusting in yourself will lead. Uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert, although it's in the title, The Downfall. It's not a pretty sight. Then I kind of came to my senses. I thought I, I should probably try and think of a, a, a scriptural example. And so I thought of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, and I got the first question right, so let's see who can get this question right. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? That's right, but you're not a child, so. <laughs> Who's Nebuchadnezzar? Hmm? A king. He was a king. Anybody know uh, of which kingdom he was the king? Babylon. Good. So, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And uh, Babylon is one of the all-time great empires of the ancient world. Uh, truly a very great empire. And we learn a lot about Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 4, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace, and he's surveying his kingdom. Maybe he's thinking that everything the light touches is his. And uh, he's, he's looking at his kingdom, and it's very great indeed. And he says in verse 30, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty powers as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar after he says these things? Yes. Yeah, it's not good, right? So he loses everything. He even loses his human reason. He's, he's not able to think like a person, and he goes around like an animal on the ground. So he has no wisdom, he has no power, and he has no riches. Everything in which he was just boasting is taken away from him. And it's not until he acknowledges God as sovereign, in verse 34 he says, uh, God, his, meaning God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation it's not until he says that and acknowledges God as sovereign that he gets his reason or his wisdom, the glory of his kingdom or his might, and his majesty and splendor or his riches return to him. And after this remarkable change of heart, you might say conversion, 
uh, he is given even more gifts from God because he is now praising, extolling, and honoring the king of heaven. He doesn't get these extra gifts because of who he is or what he has done, but because he now knows and understands our God. Now, if you are following along in the outline, I want to apologize. I'm going to skip the next point, move to the application, uh, because the application doesn't actually apply to the next point, but I will get to it eventually. <clears throat> we read in our, in our affirmation of faith the, what is the end of all boasting in God, right? It's full and perfect communion and union with our triune God. What is, however, what is the end of all boasting and trusting in ourselves? Well, question 89, the one right before our, past, our question from the affirmation of faith, asks, what shall be done to the wicked on the day of judgment? And the answer is, on the day of judgment, the wicked shall be set on Christ's left hand, and upon clear evidence and full conviction of their own consciences, shall have the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them, and thereupon shall be cast out from the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all his holy angels into hell, to be punished with unspeakable torments both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. If you are boasting or trusting in yourself, this is where your boasting will lead. Now, there's another dimension of uh, trusting and boasting um, that we, we need to consider, uh, because on the one hand, there's people like Nebuchadnezzar, who before he was converted, uh, he, he was nevertheless, although he was a believer, uh, excuse me, although he was an unbeliever, he was nevertheless, through God's common grace, given great uh, gifts of wisdom, power, and riches. But there's also true believers who have similar or greater gifts of wisdom, power, and riches. Are they allowed to boast in that wisdom, power, and riches? Because they're, they're gifts of God. Well, certainly not. And uh, to, to prove that point, let's look at Solomon, who is uh, probably the greatest example of a wise, powerful, and rich believer. Uh, we read about Solomon in, in first, first Kings chapter 3. Solomon prays to God and asks him for wisdom. He doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for riches. He asks for wisdom so that he could lead God's people justly. And God grants him that wisdom, and in his unmeasurable grace, grants him far more. Verses 12 and 13 says, uh, verses 12 and 13, God says, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you will arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. So Solomon is the wisest king that ever was, the most powerful king that ever was, and the richest king that ever was. And those are all gifts by God, gifts from God. Would he have been justified in boasting in those gifts, in his wisdom, in his power, in his riches? No, not at all. Calvin, uh, again, says that God, through Jeremiah, reduces to nothing all the boastings of the world. If everything that we receive is a gift, then we must not boast in ourselves or in the gift, but in the one who gave the gift. Don't mistake me, however. This is not a call to a, a false humility or to denigrate the gifts that God has given you. If God has blessed you with true wisdom from above, then don't call it foolishness. If God has given you 
strength of body or power and influence in your family, your church, your friends, your workplace, don't call it nothing. If God has given you earthly wealth, then don't waste it on frivolities thinking that it's worth nothing. James reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What he, God, has called good, do not call worthless. But do not boast in it or trust in it to save you from your sin. Okay, so we've dealt with the negative commandment, do not boast. Now we are thinking of the positive command, do boast. And like I said, this is not a, this is not a contradiction, for on the, the one hand, we're commanded not to boast in ourselves or in the gifts that God has given us. Here we are commanded to boast in, uh, in God himself, who he is, what he has done for us and continues to do for us, and of our knowledge and relationship with him through union with Christ, the power and wisdom of God. Let me read verse 24 again. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You might have recognized, if you have an ESV Bible, that the title, Lord, is printed in small, uh, uppercase capitals. And you might remember that that is the ESV's way of rendering the personal covenant name of our triune God. So the Lord is not commanding just a sort of uh, boasting in, in a generalized concept of God that, you know, like some lowercase g God that as if there's some force out there like fate or destiny or the demiurge. That's not what we're being commanded here. We're being commanded to uh, boast in him who, before time began, covenanted with himself to redeem a people for himself from Satan and sin. Our knowledge of God is not, uh, not just to be general, but it is to be able to distinguish between the true God and false gods and idols. So we're commanded to boast in who our covenant Lord is, but also because of what he does and has done. Verse 24 says, The Lord practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. In 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 30, Paul says that because of him, that is our triune God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We see here that in our Lord Jesus and his incarnation, his perfect life, his sinless death, his miraculous resurrection and glorious ascension, our triune covenant Lord exhibited in the fullest sense of the word steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth for his children. As Augustine said, let us celebrate joyfully the coming of our salvation and redemption. He it is who has made for us justice and sanctification and redemption. So we're commanded to boast in God because of who he is and because of what he has done, but we are also commanded to know and understand God. And it's not enough just to know about God. We must be in a relationship with him. Over the last year or so, I've been learning French, and something interesting about French, and I'm sure other languages too, is that uh, there are two different verbs in French to uh, 
give the sense of to know. So in English, we only have one to know. In French, there are two, and one, uh, one gives you the idea of knowing about something or knowing how to do something, and the other one um, gives the sense of having a close, personal, intimate knowledge either of something or of someone. So if I wanted to say, uh, I know how to play the guitar, I would use the first verb. If I wanted to say, I know my wife, I would use the second verb. So there's a distinction between knowing about something and knowing and being in relationship with someone. And it's, so it's not enough for us to know that God exists or to know about his attributes uh, or his power, because as Paul tells us in Romans 1, what can be known about God has been clearly revealed in creation. But we must know God in a personal and relational way. A few verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. To those of us who have been called, our Lord Jesus is not just an historical figure about whom to know, but he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And uh, if we needed another reason not to boast in ourselves or in the gifts that God has given us, Paul reminds us in verses 27 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, not many of us are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us are powerful. Not many are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, that's us, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, that's us, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, that is us, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And again, we read during our affirmation of faith of what the end of those uh, who boast in their covenant Lord, perfect and full communion, immediate vision and fruition of our triune Lord. If you are still boasting in or trusting in yourself, in your own wisdom, your own strength, your own riches, or your own righteousness to save you from your sins, then these blessings are not for you. You need to confess your foolishness, confess your weakness, confess your spiritual poverty, and boast in who God is and what he has done, and ask the Holy Spirit to give you true sight so that you can begin to truly know and understand our triune God. I think hopefully it's clear to us now that maybe the best New Year's resolution we could make would be to know and understand our great triune God better and more deeply. But how do we do that? I'm going to highlight three different ways uh, that God has given us, and th these are not the only three ways, but uh, these are three ways that God has given us that we can do just that with the help of the spirit of holiness and sanctification. <clears throat> First, we have the very words of God. Take up and read. As Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does it mean to, to dwell? It means to live, right? So Paul is commanding us to allow the word of God to live in our heads and in our hearts and in our wills or our hands richly, deeply. How can we get to the point where the word of God is living in us deeply if we only open our Bibles on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings? 
How can we get to the point where the words of God are living in our hearts, minds, and wills deeply if we think of and treat the Bible as just another book to be read when we feel like it? You guys know that I, I reference J.R.R. Tolkien a lot, and I think about his works even more. Uh, but I say to my shame that at times in my life, I have pri- uh, prized the works of Tolkien above the Word of God. May it never be so. What a blessing we have to possess the full revelation of God in our hands. May it not remain there. May it take up its abode, permanent abode, in our hearts, our minds, and our wills. Second, every Sunday we have one or two, like this week, opportunities to hear the Word of God preached to us or exhorted to us. We are blessed as a congregation to have a senior pastor who loves the Lord and loves the Word of the Lord and loves bringing the Word of the Lord to bear on the people in his flock. And We are also blessed to have many chaplains who love to bring that same Word of God to bear on our lives. We heard a wonderful sermon this morning from Reverend Chaplain Haman. Dr. Joel Beakey says of faithful pastors, these shepherds give to the people the knowledge and understanding of the Lord that is the greatest blessing they have in their power to bestow. Do you want the best gift that Pastor Mott can give you? Then come to, come to morning worship and attend diligently to the word read, sung, confessed, and especially preached. And come to evening worship and hear the same word read, sung, confessed, and preached. You all are here this, this evening, and I'm uh, very glad to see you. But come next time evening worship is offered, and tell your family and your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, of the joys of evening worship, of having a second helping of the knowledge and understanding of the Lord. Not to, not to guilt trip them, you better come to evening worship or else, but think of it like when Philip was telling Nathaniel about Jesus in John chapter 2. What did he say? He said, come and see. Come and experience it, and then you will know. And third, we have a wonderful storehouse of theology, thousands of years of theology, to mine again and again. Unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, they think of theology, and they think, well, that's, that's for pastors, maybe for elders, or for uh, professional theologians. But like Dr. R.C. Sproul famously said, everyone is a theologian, so be a good one. If you're going to be a theologian, you may as well be a good one and not a bad one. Theology uh, should not stay in our minds, but it should motivate us to glorify God. Do you want to glorify God more and deeper? I hope so. If you do, then learn more about him. Read his word, attend diligently to his word preached, whenever it is offered, and read the blessings of sound theology. I want to close this exhortation with an exhortation from Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, the power and the wisdom of God. In Luke chapter 10, the 72 disciples are returning from uh, preaching in the name of Christ and casting out demons and healing people, and they're, they're obviously and understandably excited. Um, you've probably had the experience, you come back from a, a, a conference or a mission trip, and you're just so excited about 
what the Lord was doing in your heart. Well, imagine if you were casting out demons. And um, Jesus, when they return, Jesus is joyful along with him. He says, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's pretty cool, right? That's a good thing. But Jesus reminds his disciples, and he reminds us, also his disciples, to rejoice in the proper things first. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let us rejoice in, let us boast in, let us trust in our triune covenant Lord and in his plan of redemption for us weak, foolish, and poor sinners. As it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let us pray. Our great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you and thank you for who you are and what you have done. I pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to know you and understand you and boast in you more <coughs> each day. Give us a deeper understanding of our sin and of your holiness, and may that twin understanding drive us to <clears throat> trusting in you and in your word, for we are helpless without you. Pray that you would cause your word to dwell richly in our hearts and in our minds and in our wills, that we would be transformed into the image of your Son, Christ, for your glory, and it's in his name we pray, amen.